and we hear usually ones, good ones from Ron from all around the world, and then Derek made one up, tricked us about Henry going to work. But we love good stories, especially when they reach that moment and you get sucked in and some dramatic things get said like, as the sun sets slowly in the west or the final countdown began or something like that. When we see the end coming, it really grabs us. When things don't have an ending point, especially for me, I lose attention. Like a daytime soap opera where there's no ending point. Or maybe it's a trip to Target with your wife, and you're thinking, will this ever end? We need to know that there's a plan which helps keep our attention. When I was 13, maybe like you, I had kind of a I'm going to live forever perspective. But that would not be that fun probably if you did. And I think life gets a little bit cruel once you move past 13 you realize you need glasses maybe, or you start losing some hair, or you saw a wrinkle you didn't have before, and you become face-to-face with the fact that you're not going to live forever, you do have an ending point. And hopefully when that happens, you'll be thinking, is the plan I'm on a good one? And this morning, as uh, Ron helped us know, we're launching the new series we're calling It All Comes Down to This. And in this series, we're going to take a look at what is the terminus, the ultimate, most crucial moment in all of human history. And that's not the internet. That's not modern medicine. It's not the automobile. It's not the smartphone. The most crucial moment in history was, and it still is, the crucifixion and the resurrection of a man who claimed to be God. So as we move ahead, I want you to keep something in mind that we've just finished a journey through a part of Matthew called the Olivet Discourse. And that's really just the fancy name for the teaching Jesus gave while on the Mount of Olives. Some of you have even visited the Mount of Olives in person. It looks a lot different now than it does on the screen, but just go with me here, pretend that's a lush hillside. Because it's a very important place. Since 3000 BC until today, that mountain almost two miles long, has been a very special and a sacred place for people in the region. And while Jesus was on that hill, his main subject was teaching all about the end, eternity. He was talking about God's plan for his people, Israel, his plans for what would become his church, his plans for the world. He was talking about how God the Father had a plan that would bless the entire world, And Jesus wanted to get people prepared, especially people who followed him for the future. They needed to be prepared for their short-term future and their long-term future. He wanted people to know his plan. He wanted them to be ready for the end. So our goal here, not just this morning, but beyond, it's to keep our attention on Jesus and get in on his plan. So we're in Matthew 26. Would you turn there with me? Or get your device ready to go. And before we read, let's pray one more time. Jesus, we need to hear from you this morning. Would you help us to get our mind ready, help us to see things we can't see without your help, and go with us, be with us as we study your word. Teach us to be ready to follow you and your plan. So we're turning to Matthew 26, and thankfully 
The Apostle Matthew took great notes. So let's read what he recorded in chapter 26. We're going to start in the first five verses, which begins on quite a sour note. When Jesus had finished all these things, all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Jesus is really patient. I wish I was more like Jesus in that way. But Jesus is reminding his followers for the fourth time of God's plan. Three times before, he's told them, guys, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed as all part of God's plan. But like me, at times, they didn't get it yet. But he told them again that soon the Passover is coming. The Passover was an annual reminder, a very solemn one, a yearly opportunity for Israel, the Jews, to commemorate their escape, their exodus from Egypt. They'd been in slavery for years under the Egyptian pharaohs. The Israelites had been forced into crushing labor, terrible punishment, and the death of many of their children. But God had made a plan for rescue. And he sent Moses to Pharaoh with a message. Anyone remember what the message was? Let my people go. But even with the warnings, Pharaoh refused to listen to God. So God sent on Egypt 10 terrible plagues, destroying everything from livestock to crops, even their firstborn sons. But as part of God's plan, while this was happening, God spared the sons of the children of Israel when he passed over their homes, specifically passing over the homes of those who followed God's plan. And when this happened, Pharaoh was broken. And he basically chased his former slaves out of the land. And, and the picture kind of within the picture here that the disciples and the Jewish priests couldn't see yet is this. If you're taking notes, the fill-in is here. God's plan is that Jesus' death and resurrection will provide the ultimate Passover, allowing anyone who repents to be rescued from the ultimate enemy, sin. That is good news. That is a good plan. But the Jewish religious leaders were not following God's plan. Like many of us today, they were following their own plan, and that involved ditching Jesus in favor of their traditions. And as we just read, they gathered in a secret meeting to finally do what they wanted, get rid of the one who competes with their priorities. And Jesus had not done a great job making friends with them because he told them what they did not want to hear and was true, he told them to their face, you're far from God. You don't actually love God. You look really religious on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. And at the house of a Jewish high priest named Caiaphas, they made a plan to get Jesus out of the way, which they did momentarily because God's plan can't be stopped. So to set the scene, this time of year was a very big deal in Israel, in Jerusalem specifically. Passover tended to make national fervor run high as they all remembered being slaves in Egypt. But even as they approached such a solemn time of year where they remember God rescuing them, they plotted the death of an innocent man. 
And ironically, while they did this, they tried to be practical while they condemned him. Verse 5, let's wait till after the, after the Passover feast so we don't cause a commotion. Imagine, they're trying to say, guys, let's be sensible as we kidnap, accuse, and condemn an innocent man. So it's in this section, I hope we're reminded by the disciples' poor memory to take God at his word. Study it, absorb it, be trained by it, obey it. I hope we get reminded by the Jewish leaders here and by Pharaoh. You can fight against God with your own plan, but his plan will win in the end. I hope we ask ourselves, are there plans in your life that Jesus is a threat to? How can I adjust my life to be more according to God's plan? So we read about a plan to kill Jesus. Now let's move to a different meeting, not so secret, but a typical dinner gathering of the area. And here we're going to read about a different plan. It's a plan to worship, starting in verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you'll always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Verse 12, In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So quite a different scene than a murder plot. Instead of that, we have what appears on the surface to be a friendly gathering, and it mostly is. They're in the city of Bethany, and Matthew records they were dining at a man's house who's called Simon the Leper, which is quite a tough nickname if you ask me. But once you get a nickname from your group of friends, sometimes it's very hard to lose that nickname. Uh, I'm thinking back in high school, there was a huge group of Mormons on my basketball team, and they nicknamed me Ogre. This was before the movie Shrek. Um, I bore this name for four years. Thankfully, it dropped off after high school, but it stuck around for a while. Now, Simon had leprosy at one point in time, and when you had leprosy, you were required to live apart from the general population. So probably at this point, Simon had certainly been healed, but it's, like I said, hard to lose a nickname. He's hosting the dinner party. Simon the leper's at dinner with the disciples and Jesus, mostly probably men there. They're, picture this, they're seated on the floor around kind of a coffee table, and they're leaning on their elbow, and they're eating with their other hand, and all of a sudden... Mary comes in with a jar of some sort, and she causes a stir. As the young people say, it got awkward. It got uncomfortable in the room. Ever had that happen when someone says or does something that just changes the tone, and all of a sudden everyone has dumb chills, and the room, kind of the air sucked out? I think that's what's happening here. And we know from John's gospel in chapter 12 that this was Mary of Bethany, sister of Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. He was probably there too. And Mary's world, I'm convinced, had been rocked by Jesus. Her world had been changed. The plan of her life was now centered around a person who she saw as totally valuable. And I'm picturing the cast at this dinner party. One, 
formerly a leper. Another, formerly dead. Another, a strangely bold woman. And yet another who would soon die for the sin of the world. And Mary, being the strangely bold woman, breaks the norm for women, enters this gathering, and does something extravagant, over the top. She honors Jesus in an extravagant way. She anoints him with an incredibly expensive ointment. And she doesn't dab it, like with the perfume sample in the women's magazine where you rub it on yourself. She doesn't even spread it or put a drop. She poured it all out on him. And when she did that beautiful thing, the disciples missed the entire point. They got angry. They got indignant. Mary prepares Jesus for his death and his burial, and they're mad about it. But she had been listening all along. Mary was in on Jesus' plan. And Jesus said, Mary, guys, by pouring this on my body, she was getting me ready for my burial. Kind of a morbid statement at a dinner party. But Jesus, and it seems Mary, knew God's plan. They're committed to God's plan. Jesus, we know, he was committed to the will of the Father, to rescue, to offer rescue to a sinful world. And the disciples failed their one job, listening to Jesus. And so they missed it. Instead of listening to Jesus, they virtue signaled. For those of you that don't know what virtue signaling is, I've put a helpful definition on the screen. A virtual, virtue signaling is when you draw attention to yourself with something basically useless in order to support a good cause, but actually to show off how much better you are than everybody else. Remember when the Prius came out and everyone was so happy about how much of the earth they were saving and how bad you are for driving a gas-guzzling car? That's one way you can virtue signal. There's a trillion others. But the disciples signaled their virtue for caring for the poor all while totally missing the bigger picture of what was really happening and what's really important. Now, for you math people in the room, the the disciples weren't wrong. They aren't wrong about the cost, the value of what Mary did. Their math is correct. A year's wages, they say, this, this ointment costs. So, depending on your perspective, she either totally wasted the money or she spent it on a burial for a king. Hmm. Many of us miss God's plan while we're angry or anxious about things that aren't on God's plan. Maybe they're good causes, but are they on his mission? Are they a part of his plan? We all need to check ourselves But Mary, she got it. And here's your next fill-in. Mary recognized Jesus as the treasure that he is, which was God's plan to save the world. This reminds me of what Jesus said a few chapters back in chapter 13, if you want to turn there. Chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus described the kingdom of heaven like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Mary had found the treasure, and it was Jesus. She had found that one pearl, 
and it was Jesus. Mary was worshiping the key person in all of human history and adopting his plan. It was worth the huge expense to her because of his great value, his great worth, and it turned into worship. So South Shores, how can we connect ourselves to the mission of God in this world? How can we recognize Jesus' worth and demonstrate that in our personal lives? How do we do that as a church? I mean, Mary makes me feel pretty guilty. Mary can make us feel very polarized. Mary sacrificed socially to do what she did. She sacrificed financially a year's wages in order to worship Jesus. And us, according to one usher report, some of us won't move off the end of the row to let somebody in, let alone give. Mary sacrificed financially and socially in order to honor her Savior, and some of us only give our scraps and donate our leftovers, if at all. Mary sacrificed financially and socially in order to do something beautiful for her king, but some of us find ourselves like the disciples. We might be close to Jesus, but we're mad. We're indignant. Maybe the pastor's not wearing a tie, and you just can't see past that. Maybe the music's too loud, too quiet. Maybe that podium that you love so much is not there anymore. And you're mad about it. I don't know what it is. But let none of us miss the point and burn energy around things that aren't on God's plan. Let's demonstrate our worship of Jesus in meaningful, impactful ways. My prayer is that our church will grow to have a testimony like Mary that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, they'll talk about South Shore's too, about South Shore's devotion to the Lord and to his plan. So we've read about a plan to kill Jesus, and then we read about a plan to worship Jesus. We're going to finish our morning with a plan to betray Jesus. Looking at verse 14, chapter 26, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. I think this should totally terrify every one of us. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest followers. Someone who followed him for years, listening to his plan. However, in spite of being close to Jesus, Judas was following his own plan more important to him than Jesus's. And as we look at Judas, none of us should believe, even this guy up here preaching, none of us should believe that simply being close to Jesus means we're actually faithful to him. What I mean is this, just because we have close proximity to Jesus does not at all mean that we are devoted to his plan. That's your last fill in there. Just because we have close proximity to Jesus does not at all mean that we are devoted to to his plan. Even if you give money to the church, church giving does not guarantee us a spot in heaven. Attending a missions trip might get you closer to the world, but it's not going to guarantee loyalty to God. Decades of incredible church attendance does not guarantee your devotion to God. So if this sermon's too long and you don't want to read the whole thing, if you only hear one thing today, hear this. The only thing that grants us heaven 
is the grace of God which comes to us when we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. It's, it's only submission to and love of Jesus that can accomplish heaven for us by his grace. For Judas, though, sadly, after all this time close to Jesus, it came down to just 30 pieces of silver. So consider this as we think about 30 pieces of silver. We don't really trade in silver much, but the ancient world did. And the ancient world was very different than now. It was a very gritty place. Life was very cheap in that ancient world. Slavery was rampant. Think of the movie Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston. Or if you don't know that, think Brad Pitt in the movie Troy. I want everyone to be able to be in on this. It was a brutal time to be alive. And when God gave his people, Israel, his rules, he put in place rules that can seem very strange or harsh through the lens of 2020. But what we're going to see is, through the lens of that gritty and tough ancient world, God was actually elevating the value of human life. Here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 21, God instituted a rule, a new rule, that if your farm tractor, your ox, gored someone's slave to death, you would be fined 30 pieces of silver. Before that, the life of of a slave was worth basically nothing. But God said now the fine for that would be 30 pieces of silver, which really equated in that day to about four months wages. In modern terms, most smart guys think that's worth about $8,000 today. So think about this. The Jewish leaders who proclaimed to love Jesus so much, proclaimed to be on God's plan, or they claimed to love God. They didn't like Jesus. Jesus to them was worth about as much as a dead slave. And Judas on paper looked very committed to Jesus. Judas looked very committed to the plan of God. But in reality, Judas, Jesus was worth to him about just eight grand. The question I have, would you sell your soul for eight grand? This week, as some of the pastors gather around to talk about this passage, Pastor Micah said something pretty insightful about this paradox that we see between Judas and Mary. So we were discussing how to Judas, Jesus wasn't worth much, but to Mary, Jesus was worth everything. And Micah said it in passing, but I thought it was funny. He said, I guess one man's trash is another woman's treasure. And it's true. Jesus was Mary's treasure. And so the question is, is he your treasure? Your true heart's treasure? And then Pastor Ron said something that I thought, that's great, I'm going to steal this for my sermon. Pastor Ron noted how all the guys, all the men in this passage kind of missed the point. The disciples missed it. The Jewish leaders definitely missed it. Judas, well, we know he missed it. Who's the one person who got it? Mary. The woman is the one who did the right thing. I think this is significant because it shows us, here's one more reason One more piece of evidence that the Bible is not man-made. Because if it were, they would have left that part out probably. So, as we close, we got to ask ourselves, what are the obstacles that might prevent us from adopting Jesus' plan for our lives and for this world? I think there's at least two. They're kind of similar. The first obstacle in our way, the greatest potential obstacle to God's plan, it's our own plan. 
It's our own plan. Here's an example of what I mean. Um, there was, I read an online article that came out the day after the Oscars aired last weekend. And this guy wrote this scathing article. And he's not even a Christian, but I thought, oh, that is so good. You guys need to hear this because it really helps us understand this. He said this, Andy Warhol got it slightly wrong when he said that in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. In fact, thanks to social media, everybody is famous to at least 15 people. Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook mean we don't have to ogle stars anymore. We're too busy ogling ourselves. If you follow Jesus, you will have to fight daily your heart's tendency to follow your own plan, to ogle ourselves. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet this morning, this might be the biggest obstacle keeping you from giving your life to Jesus. But I would say to everyone, come find the world's greatest treasure in Jesus this morning. And the other obstacle, kind of similar, just might be everyday casual selfishness. But like Mary showed us here, when we submit to Jesus for real, he changes us. He gives us a new heart, a new relationship to ourself. And instead of ogling ourselves, we begin offering ourselves to the service of God and others. There's another pastor who recently preached on this same passage, and I read his sermon, and I love what he said, so I stole this sentence, and I'm giving it to you. You can read it on the screen. He said, Voluntary, spontaneous, lavish giving is the fruit of Jesus' great love in a person's heart. You see, when Jesus changes you, your relationship to yourself radically changes. You become a voracious giver in many different ways. You'll be a giver in a new way to your family, to your friends, to your children, to your church. And as we know, the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver, especially the ones who actually give. You'll get that one later. Let me be practical with what this means. So recently... Last week or so, 10 days ago, Ty sent out an email, kind of listed out the timeline of South Shores. One of the lines that he reminded us was that this church site that we're sitting in now was launched in 1962 with a gift of $190,000, contributed by simple men and women, captivated by the good news of Jesus, and they gave. And then, all these years later, this building was renovated from top to bottom, and two new buildings were built. The parking lot was lengthened for more spaces, for more people to hear about Jesus. We support. I reached out to, to Derek. I said, how many missionaries do we have? And he said, we support 36 missionaries, seven missionary organizations. All of those taking the life-changing news of Jesus to our globe. All of that, all of this is basically supported by a regular giving group of just 300 people. I was staggered by that because we have about a thousand adults that come here on a weekend. And that makes me think, Eric, if just 300 regular givers can be used to do all that, what could happen to our church, to our state, to our globe, if the rest of South Shores began to give regularly? What could the Lord do with our gifts? What if all of us were so convinced of God's plan that it changed our relationship to money and we double down on our investment in what is eternal. I can't think of a more fitting way to finish the sermon 
than to remind us all of what might be the best example of someone who was full steam ahead on their own plan, hit the brakes, fell off, and then got onto God's plan. They encountered and then surrendered to the living God and were forever changed. They got in on God's plan. Of course, I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. If you want to follow along, we'll be in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, where Paul famously used to imprison and torture Christians, now suddenly had a new relationship with Jesus. He said this, Everything that was a gain to me, I've considered it to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and I consider them dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of of my own that comes from the law, but one that's through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Did you notice Paul getting on God's plan? He was changed In response to the most crucial moment of all of human history, the guy that used to murder and torture followers of the way of Christ became a follower of Jesus. Paul gave up everything that was on his plan, and he got in on the plan of Jesus, and I hope that we do too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need to be changed by you. We need to be convinced that your plan is the best plan. And like Paul, may we have the recognition that even the best things we can do for ourselves are just trash when we compare them to what you call us to. Lord, would you change our church? Would you cause us to be radically changed by your truth? May South Shores gain a testimony around the globe because of how committed we are to you and the way that we contribute ourselves and what we have, what we've been given to you and to your plan. We ask it all in Jesus' name.